All right, well, let's get going then. Robin Schofield, thank you so much for stopping by. You're um, welcome. I've got a lot of questions. I'm really curious. I, the Associate Director of Clinical and Sports Psychological Services for Athletics here at USC. And you said you've been here 22 years, 23? 22. 22. So tell me a little bit about what you do. So um, I'm the head of the program, but um, the sports psych staff includes um, three other full-time clinical sports psychologists, a postdoctoral fellow, and a part-time sports psychiatrist. And um, we sort of run the gamut from um, helping student-athletes manage, uh, you know, and the department manage emergencies and crises around mental health and health, um, all the way to the other end, which is, you know, help them uh, with individual and team performance. So in the middle is, um, you know, more mild mental health issues. General student athletes are subjected to those at a roughly the same rate that our um, college population, college student population is. Uh, to just personal issues, to wanting self-improvement, to wanting to know how to get along better with their coach or manage as team captains or, um, you know, just strictly perform better. Um, and then so we handle all those kinds of issues as well as um, work with teams and coaches and the administration on just providing an environment that's conducive to well-being and excellence. Those right. things aren't in opposition of each other. Um, so we're trying to support both. That's really interesting. So is it you're really offering the full gamut of psychological and mental health services, but it just happens to be for athletes? Yes. And, you know, adding to that, um, you the know. Team dynamics. Um, teamwork. Um, and also sort of a more hands-on approach to helping coaches and the department um, manage folks with more challenging mental health issues um, and, and then just the performance enhancement work in and of itself. Right. So way back in the day, 22 years ago, <laughs> what was it like? When I first came here. Yeah. So, you know... Uh, you know, the sports psych psychology science has been around for a little bit. Um, it's a tough science because there are so many factors that contribute to any particular performance that it's very hard, hard to isolate, um, you know, factors that contribute to performance. But sports science has been around for a long time. And, of course, mental health issues have been around for a long time. So when I first got here... Um, the field was starting to get some traction, um, and uh, you were starting to hear uh, in the media, in the general media, um, a little bit about uh, elite athletes who were using sports psychologists. Um, but then, you know, we, we largely followed uh, the collegiate trajectory of mental health issues in and of themselves you know, steadily rising over the last two years amongst the collegiate population. So when you pair that and, and the, and the student athlete, uh, hold on. So two years ago is when everything took off. Is that what I'm hearing? No, 
No, no, no. The this change or, in trajectory started about twenty years ago. Uh huh. Yeah. Where gradually, if you look at the ACHA NCHA data, which is kind of the gold standard for the top two hundred universities in the country, the mental health issues slowly started creeping up. Okay. And over the last couple of decades, and especially the last decade, I mean, it's been well documented in the media that mental health issues have been significantly on the rise in terms of number of symptoms and severity of symptoms for collegiate students in general. And basically, the student-athlete population has had a similar steady increase as well. So as and and these the from our millennial generations to this generation we've had young folks who are more resourceful they're good at seeking out help and so um and increasingly you know as more and more um you know elite athletes have talked about getting psychological help or seeking you know uh, the support of sports psychologists it's become slowly more and more acceptable so there's a lot of factors that have contributed to sort of the current zeitgeist, which is that, you know, it's become very acceptable. And so I think for a variety of reasons, the discipline has just exploded now. So, so you're saying there's all those different factors, right? It's destigmatized. More people are feeling comfortable to be treated. And there's also more people who need treatment. How do you look at those? How do you do you think it's 50-50? Where do you, where do you put the split? Do you think it's more that people want or are, you know, that treatment's acceptable and that people always needed the treatment or do you really think that there has been some societal breakdown or some serious like increase in mental health issues that we didn't see in the past? Uh, I don't know that I could break it down by percentage. Sure. Um, I mean cuz you know, societally you're asking you know, what were these rates of depression there before? And we just didn't pay attention to them. We didn't measure them. We didn't talk about them because of the stigma. Definitely a possibility and, and probably a contributing factor. Um, do generational and cultural factors affect, uh, you know, the changes that we see? Absolutely. No question. Um, and so, and then also just, you know, the idea that we should be working on our mindset and mental skills like we work on our body has also, you know, sort of risen. That idea has become more acceptable within athletics, right? So if you think about, so you've got multiple contributing factors. If you think about- When did it start to become more acceptable? Well, here it's been acceptable for a long time because- you know, I've, I've been here a long time, so that just afforded a cert- certain amount of stability in the relationships. And, you know, I was able to work closely with the coaches so they know exactly what the approaches are. You know, we, we translate into layman's terms what actually happens in a session. So there's no guessing. What, what do we do if this athlete comes in and wants to retire? What do we do with athlete comes in and they're burned out? What do we do, you know, if they're having relationship problems? What do they do if, you know, they're having any kind of existential crisis about their sport? Right. You know, uh, whatever. So we're very open about how we actually work. Um, So that gives coaches a lot of comfort. And then we work with coaches to help them manage what can be challenging situations for them to manage just 
with their relationship with the student athlete and the effect that it has on the team. So as we've done more and more of that, they become more and more comfortable um, with what it means. Because if you think of athletic culture, right, athletic culture is about things like where there's a will, there's a way, right, which means that if anything's wrong from a broken leg to, you know, disappointment, your will should be able to fix it. And, you know, we know there's limits to willing a broken leg without a cast. And similarly, there's limits to dealing with some mental health problems without some guidance. Right. And so, you know, but historically, that sort of stoic athlete persona um, and, you know, the stigma has sort of precluded athletes from coming in. But as we've been able to work more openly about how we work and what we do and what what facilitates change, um, coaches have been more and more comfortable. So all of our coaches are completely comfortable, refer in, you know, are happy to kind of stand next to us in front of the team and endorse the services. Okay, Robin. So I'm, I'm coming into the office. I'm the star quarterback at USC and I say, I want to retire. And you're saying that Coach Elton's going to refer going to I tell coach Helton that and he's going to refer me to you. I mean it, he may have some things to say about it himself. Right. Um but then, you know, another option is to refer him into us as well to open the dialogue and give the person the space to kind of work through, you know, what brought this on, what are they thinking about? A lot of times when there are those kinds of issues, there are other things that they're not satisfied with um, with regard to their sport. And it really has to do, a lot of it has to do with the difference between a childhood athletic career and adult athletic career, right. elite athletic career, and adjusting. And, and people don't shepherd, people don't know how to shepherd athletes through that transition. And that can create a lot of challenges for them. So... You know, generally, we recommend that this, this a safe place be provided for them to kind of think through their thoughts and sort of try to really understand what it is that's that's creating this, you know, um, unsettledness within them, rather than making some kind of rash decision. Right. Most D1 student athletes that come to, you know, compete at a D1 level, they made a right choice. They did it because that's what they wanted to do. Um, but there are a lot of things today that can kind of, um, challenge, you know, the experience they've had in athlete athletics before they get to college to the experience, what it's like once they get to college. So sometimes they just need support in making yeah. that adjustment. Yeah. That's interesting. And, and you talked about earlier the, the increase in, well, we can't put a percentage on it. You said between. Um, people, the destigmatization, people feeling comfortable talking about it and possibly the rise in the issue of mental health problems. Have you seen personally a rise in treatment at USC for mental health issues? Absolutely. Which is why I started out, you know, part-time here myself. And now there's four full-time clinical sports psychologists, a part-time sports psychiatrist and a postdoc. So, yes. And across the country, if you look at it, um, you know, that's the tidal wave of the movement is that 
universities. And this is, again, this particular statistic, it's not necessarily uh, specific to athletics. Universities across the country are struggling to accommodate the demand and severe increase in demand uh, in general counseling centers on campuses. Sure. And why is it that the university allocates, is it, would the sports psychologist see the athlete for a mental health problem or would it be yes. the psychiatrist? Is I don't know the difference. Psychologists do the talk therapy and psychiatrists primarily prescribe medication. So that's why we, we have four who, you know, four psychologists and only one part-time psychiatrist. It's the minority of folks who come in for psychological services want psych psychiatric services, which is prescriptions. Mm -hmm. And these sports psychologists are allocated to the athletes instead of just general practicing uh, psychologists because they know the stress an athlete faces. Well, they've specifically, been trained, they've been trained on the stress of a sport in the culture of athletics, in how to intervene, how symptoms manifest slightly differently in athletes, you know, the intersection of sport performance and mental health issues. They've been trained specifically to work with this population, just like any other sociodemographic population. And athletics um, at USC was one of the first to really recognize the significance of the issues of the whole person. So, you know, they realized, the administration realized many years ago that one of the biggest factors really that get in the way of sport performance and academic performance are personal and mental health issues. And you got here what year? 1998. Okay, and what year did Pete Carroll get here? He was here in the early 2000s. Okay, and did you, I know that Pete is a, at least seemingly a, a proponent of a lot of this stuff. Did you work closely with Pete? Not as closely with him when he was here. Okay. He, he um, you know, he had an, a, a master's degree in psychology right. and sort of had his own philosophy. Um, he would refer in, uh, mm -hmm. you know, as needed. Um, yeah, but he's he's kind of worked more closely with, um, sports psychologist since he's left. Right. Yeah. And there's that famous, what is, there's that tennis book. I can't remember what it is. It's the, um, the inner, the inner, inner game, game of game tennis. Of tennis. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. And he's it's friends with one. the person who wrote that. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's um, a lot. I didn't know if there was a connection there or something. So, so this is actually kind of complicated. I'm realizing there's a lot of different things you do and you've, it's, it's been nice of you to kind of overlay it in a few different sentences like we do this 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 team thing this but but I want people to actually be able to understand what that means so I think we did we kind of hit and cover the what the sports psychologist is doing if the athlete is struggling with a mental health issue right so so we would see them for individual sessions if it was extreme or needed more support they get referred to the sports psychologist I mean the sports psychiatrist for medication but again, the vast majority are not referred for medication. Right. Um, we also, if it if there's a, a mental health emergency or crisis, we are involved. You know, if, if it got to the point of having to do hospitalizations or needing a higher level of care, is we, there ever a time where you recommend that they should they should take a break from the team? Yes, it's rare. I mean, okay. just because that level of severity is more rare. 
But it's um, but happened. It, oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So then that's really interesting on the treatment side. Now there's also this whole performance side. Right. Do those things get all mishmashed together in the same session? Are they completely different things? So our approach is um, the whole healthy person is the best and most consistent performer, whether that's you know, being a good person, being a good student, or being a good athlete. Um, so the and, and the premise for that is that a lot of the, the skills that you use in, uh, you know, managing peak performance are actually very similar to the skills that you use to manage your mental health and vice versa. So there's some perspective issues that need to be addressed depending on whether it's a performance issue or a mental health issue. But the skills you learn to cope are very similar. So when you learn one, you can apply them to the other. Does right. that make sense? That so, does. so there's an upside no matter what you come in with. But that's been the department's approach. That's our approach. So, you know, and it's one of the reasons we always hire a licensed psychologist is because they consider the whole human being, not just this small slice of who they are, which is athletics and their peak performance. So there are people who specialize in just that, um, but we we focus on the whole person. And, and part of the reason for that is, um, do you think, for example, that for our average student athlete here at USC, that their athletic performance affects how they feel about themselves? Yes. Do you think it affects their identity? Absolutely. Right. And what's your identity? Athlete, then student. Athlete dash student, <laughs> not student dash athlete. <laughs> well, you are actually right that um, when you look at elite athletes and you look at their identity, um, you know, we have many identities, right? Son, brother, sister, gender-based, racial, ethnic, religious-based identities, community identities, intellectual identities. We have a multitude of identities that make up how we see ourselves. And with among elite athletes, um, the similarity is that most of them identify primarily as athletes. So that has to do with the core of who you think you are and your purpose. So Mental health issues are related to the core of who you are and your purpose. Mm-hmm. So it would make sense that if you're going to be dealing with mental health issues or performance issues, that you understand they affect the core of who you are. Right. What's confusing about that is that you've said there's been this uptick in mental health problems, but you've also said the core is that I'm an athlete. So why has there been an uptick in problems when the core identity issue hasn't changed? There's still student athletes like they were when in the 90s when you got here and that was their core so, issue and focus. So, so is it these things outside of that that are that shape the core? Absolutely. And and how the the core got defined, right? It's so, changed. Yes. So so even though athletes elite athletes have long, you know, um, prioritize their athletic identity, at least while they're doing their sport, as their identity as that of an athlete. Um, so remember, 
that the, the uptick in mental health issues is across the board. That's not unique to student athletes. So student athletes yep. are being affected by our culture and what, however they're internalizing who they are and what's important, just the same as our non-athletes. Now, the other piece with regard to the performance side, so athletes have always, elite athletes have always wanted to perform well, right? Um, but when you have a core that is grounded in all of whom you are and you're having to manage ups and downs and you're having to have the freedom to move into a flow state and let go, you have to know who that core is and it can't be threatened every time you get up on a block or you're starting on a field or a court. It has to sustain the ups and downs. So if you, if you take a desire to achieve and you, and, and you um, or the pursuit of excellence in a culture that has largely in the last few decades focused on self-worth through achievement rather than through character, that puts additional pressure on the student-athlete. So the the idea of achieving and pursuing excellence no longer becomes an, an, an endeavor by which we develop our character and our personhood. It becomes a thing that determines whether we're worthy or not. Okay. And that makes athletics a threat rather than a challenge. That's interesting. Let's bring social media into this because there may be something here, but there, and there may not be, but social media seems to define... I still see that achievement's a big issue there, but athletics isn't necessarily the top for athletes. I follow athletes, and they're not always posting their athletic achievements. Especially, I'm with women. I've and men. I've noticed that some of them are posting more achievements of their fashion or how they look or their material success or where they've traveled because that um, shows more worth through achievement than the athletic performance does have you noticed that that's a pretty lofty thing to say so you're saying how they dress and where they travel and what they eat is the now more important than the their athletic endeavor the athletic seems more a means to an end for some of these athletes by well, what for I'm, some it is i'm not right? saying for all i'm yeah, saying i've noticed s- by some some social media accounts that i follow of some athletes that right, appears seem, to be they yeah they you know it some get to a certain point and feel like to expand their brand, they're going to do things that are well within their control, right? Um, Whether it's eating certain things, wearing certain things, those kinds of things. The athletic endeavor and success in the athletic endeavor is not entirely within an athlete's control, right? Because you cannot control a competitor. So, you know, if you got to a certain level uh, and you maybe recognize that, it might be, you know, just easier to expand your brand through things that you can control. But I would suggest you're probably more of an expert on this than I am since I'm not an expert in social media. <laughs> but I think I think you should track the social media closely because that has to be at least a stressor for your athletes that you I think treat it very much and is. take care of. I think it's very much is. I mean, in the last 15 years, 10 years – you know, we've had people come in 
with depression, but this isn't exclusive to student-athletes because they didn't get enough likes. Manifesting symptoms of depression, not because of their real social life and the real human contacts they have and the support they have, but because of what's happening on their social media accounts. And see, to me, that is saying that the competition for achievement on the social platform is usurping the competition and core identity on, in terms of athletics. Well, I mean, that, you know, that may be what it's messaging to you. I, I don't know what you think. I I'm don't just throwing know. that out there. I mean, how long do you think that's going to last without the athletic side to it? How long do you think, like, the life of that, you know, the focus on what they wear, what, you know, travel, that kind of thing, without the athletic part behind them, how long do you think that's going to last? Well, it's interesting because I, I follow this um, tennis star named Eugenie Bouchard, and uh, maybe five or six years ago, she made the finals of Wimbledon, and now she's... Um, in challengers on the future circuit and her social media brands only grown not because of her tennis not success. because of her tennis success yeah. and because so, of other things like her looks or her her well and that can happen right a lot of folks want to get into broadcasting but they they hope to be an athletic success and then they can become an analyst and then go from there and and i think young people have um a lot of them have been able to parlay their athletic you know, success at some level into other things. So I, I think you're going to – and if those things become more substantial, it makes sense that they're going to focus on those things. But, um, you know, probably for the average athlete, it's not going to parlay into an ongoing celebrity status without the athletic piece there. Right. So then it's just becomes – do you look at, at social media then as more of a stressor than a value added? How do you look at it as a professional? Um, I don't know that I would um, – I don't necessarily feel I'm qualified to – I'm sure there's great things about it and there are challenges about it. I do know that it, one, of the, one of the unique things for, for student-athletes is that when you grow up, you get your family values from your family, maybe your age group coaches, your high school coaches, people in, in, in authority in your community. That's where you, that's the messaging for your values. When you leave home for the first time, you are integrating those values in a meaningful way by yourself. Mm -hmm. And you're challenging them and you're trying them out. And we all fumble in this process. You know, it. You have to grow them. You usually need more than you come to school with. You need more coping. And, and this is a time of trying everything out in young adulthood and college. And if you're not a student athlete and you fumble, who notices? Your parents when you're back at home. Maybe. At your house. But you can fumble <laughs> a lot and still stay in college too. Sure. Yeah, not you know, out. you can make social mistakes. You can make all kinds of of academic, relational, other mistakes, right? And for the most part, nobody's watching that much, right? As a student athlete, that's not the case. 
you are going to do all this fumbling, all this, you know, trying out those values, all trying to use your old coping strategies, trying to learn more to deal with more and more issues that come across your, your life as you grow, but you get to do it all in public. Mm -hmm. If you don't do well on a math test, if your GPA isn't good, everyone in athletics knows if you, you know, um, make a mistake at a party and you're a non-student athlete, unless it crosses that barrier into, into judicial affairs, not a lot of people know, right? If you do on an athletic team, the coach is going to know, your whole team is going to know. The, the stakes athletic, are much higher. The public stakes are much higher. Your, your training is observed. Your competing's observed. If you're not making it academically, it's observed. So where if you if you had a bad day and you're a regular student, you could go and say, I'm just, it was a bad day. I'm going back to bed, pulling the covers over my head, skip class, and I'll regroup and start again tomorrow. A student athlete's got somebody knocking on their door saying, why aren't you at practice at six? And by the way, if you miss your classes at the end of the day, your coach is likely to know and there'll be some consequences. So when they're fumbling around and trying to cope as a young adult and manage new adult responsibilities, it's very public. So it's much more challenging Do you and think exhausting. there's a point where the challenge becomes too challenging and it's counterproductive? Because in athletics, we talk a lot about recovery. And, and the latest thing in athletics is that the faster that I can recover – the more I can eliminate stressors, the better I can recover to train harder for my specific sport. But we've got all these crazy other stress stressors in college athletics, um, just being at the university, the social influence, like going away from home for the first time, finding yourself. And this is an elite institution. I came from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo where you had the same experience, but it was more relaxed as a student athlete. Is there a point where... Is there a breaking point? Is there a point where it all becomes too intense and too much? I think it's an it's a case by case. So most people, most of our student athletes, they consciously choose this level of intensity. You can choose a great student athlete experience uh, at a D one three school, and you can choose a great student athlete experience at a D one school. The intensity is not going to be the same. So most of them, you know, choose this because this is what they want. Does it become overwhelming for some? Yes. And, you know, when we talk to our student athletes and train them around coping, we, we talk to them about because of the rigors of your schedule, because of all the demands on you, to be overwhelmed at least once a semester is the norm. How you manage that overwhelm is what's going to be important. If you're overwhelmed all the time, then you need to come in and we're going to help you out. So, yes, a chronic state of overwhelm would not be a healthful situation. And for some people, you know, that is going to be the line is going to be different than for other people. And it's a very is it a, would you say it's a rare case at USC where a student athlete in a high demanding sport is in a more challenging major? Or you say it's a case by case basis? I'm sorry, it's a rare case that they're in demand in a demanding major, or would you say it's a case by case basis? Because uh, again, I think like it's case by case. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, we have a, I mean, do you think the Marshall School or Annenberg is challenging? I think it depends on, I think there's a lot of factors. I think it depends on where you are in the system, what type of classes you take, what types of things you choose to participate in. So I think that there's avenues for easier and harder paths within each school. So I think the same would apply for our student athletes. Right. Yeah. I'm just thinking because, you know, if you if you take a step back from USC and you say, okay, um, Harvard's still D1, but they're not competing like like the University of Southern California is competing in D1. Yeah. I'm just thinking from that way step back, like, okay, there there still are there are limits to what we can focus on, specialize on as as human beings. Yes. I mean, I think the student athlete lifestyle is is possible. I think, like I said, you have to be better. You, you, you have to hone those coping skills. Um, you have to develop that emotional tolerance. Um, and, you know, you have to be good at time management. Um, that's why the Apples and the IBMs like to hire student athletes because they hone a lot of these skills. Right. And how do you think about Gavin Newsom signing the new bill that will allow student athletes to receive endorsements starting in 2023? Do you think that will make the student athlete experience easier or do you think it'll make it more difficult? I'm going to defer that question to people who are more experts about what the reverberations are going to be with regard to that bill. I think there's a lot of reverberations that we can't even anticipate yet. So. Of course. I guess I would think in terms of uh, what you specialize in, which would be mental health. How that bill is going to affect the mental health of students? I think the bigger effect is going to be on the athletic department programs. Right. And whether we're going to be able to maintain um, the programs as they are, what they'll look like if they're you know different, um, whether we're going to be have the be able to have the same number of sports, the same number of athletes, you know. So, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm not as concerned right now about, you know, it, we'll have to see what the new structures are before I can sort of anticipate what the definitely issues are. Yeah, so going back to the sports psychiatrist, if I want to go for treatment, is it specifically to Medicaid or do you have programs and offerings that are more meditation, mindfulness? I know there's those sensory deprivation tanks, things like that. Are those ever? <laughs> I'm getting a laugh out of you for the sensory deprivation tank, but I haven't tried it, but I kind of want to. So. <laughs> so remember I said that the minority of people who come in are on medication. Yes. So the vast majority of people who come in whether it's for personal mental health, most student athletes who come in are not, you know, do not have a clinical diagnosis. Right. They come in to manage their lives better, to be better people, to be better students, to be better athletes, to be better sons, daughters, whatever it is. So that's the vast majority of people who come in to manage their lives better. Um, so what was your question again? Well, just... I, I, you talked about medicating, and I was asking if there are treatments that oh, you so we, suggest that are outside of medication for athletes. Um, only if there's 
a higher level of care. We, we provide the treatment. So the treatment may include mindfulness meditation, relaxation exercises. Uh, it may incorporate imagery. So these are all skills to help you cope. Um, but, you know, they're, they're just skills. The total array of things that we do, you know, is the treatment. I think often there's a misunderstanding that mindfulness in and of itself is mental health treatment, and it isn't. It's, it's one, it can be one component. Um, but those skills are much more widely used than medication. So medication is really depending on what you've got going on. You know, ADD is a little bit different than some of the other psychotropic medications, um, which really, you know, folks only use, you know, when it gets to a certain threshold. So. Okay. At 98, you said you're part-time, and you're seeing roughly how many patients a week? Back then, um, I don't know, maybe 20, 15, 20. Yeah, and now you have, you said you have a staff of five, including you. So sports psychologist we have alone. Four full time sports psychologists, a postdoctoral fellow, and who's full time, and a part time psychiatrist. Yeah, and we're and, full. <laughs> and you're see, and you're full. So you're seeing yeah, a hundred plus so, patients a week. Then if, um, if it's the same workload, a twenty, or is it even more? No, it's probably the same. So it's about yeah. 20, yeah. 20 a person. But it's for, again, remember, a variety of different things. Of course, of course. Um, but, yeah. I'm just trying to think of the scope of how things change. And has the athletic program expanded as well? Are there more sports at USC? Uh, we've added lacrosse and beach volleyball. Okay, so the, the percentage is still up. Yeah. Yeah. And then so for those teams like lacrosse and beach volleyball, what are the programs that you've developed over time in terms of the teamwork. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the sports psychology came out of this positive psychology movement um, within the broader discipline of psychology. So um, a lot of the, you know, the, I don't know if you've heard about the wellness movement, well-being, that's very big now. I haven't. I try to think of myself as a person that practices wellness, but what is it? It's it it comes also from uh, the positive psychology uh, sort of thread within psychology, but sports psychology has been practicing the things that have been you know sort of the basics of positive psychology since its inception. And when did positive psychology begin? Is that like way back, like Norman Van Peel and that stuff? That is um, like the power well, positive. Martin Seligman is one of the sort of grandfathers in this area. And so um, so the teamwork has always been based on that, you know, mission statements, value statements, goal sure. setting, developing a, a healthy culture. There's a lot about athletics in and of itself and the structure that provides for the environment that generally is, you know, fulfilling and supporting, supportive. Um, there's a couple of areas that, you know, athletics needs to, you know, w continue to work on. But there's connection, there's uh, mastery, there's a lot of those foundational things that 
are very much a part of the athletic lifestyle and team experience. So, so you know, we've been um, doing a lot of um, culture work in terms of establishing healthy cultures that not only support well-being but support excellence and performance since the beginning. Um, now, um, and then, and that moves on into, you know, sort of performance enhancement skills like pre-competition routines, um, imagery, uh, you know, self-talk, a lot of those basic kinds of performance enhancement skills. Um, right now we've been developing a values-based performance program to really kind of help solidify the culture, uh, on teams and that we usually do out of season. So what is this values based thing? It's basically, you know, um, establishing your purpose through your values as a team and then living your experience as a team based on the values that you chose. So what are some values of one of the teams? Throw Accountability. Some Accountability. And so I show up to practice on time. I'm accountable. Correct. Oh, I thought you were going to say no. It's much deeper than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually very straightforward. It's just hard to live. And it's hard to live in a group. And it's hard to live amongst a population that's changing, you know, a lot. What are some of the most underrated values you've seen on successful teams? Underrated? Like humor. Oh, I think humor is always. Well, connectedness is... Um, you know, it's really about your relational values, how you treat other people, respect, yeah. integrity, care, compassion for others, humility, um, all those things help your connectedness and your relationships and team cohesion. Yeah. Um, and then, and they also tend to be more fundamental to motivation they last past your athletic endeavor into your profession other professional endeavors into your family into all aspects of who you are and how you live and what motivates you because you learn to live and thrive that way yes with those core values so and then there's also sort of more performance values which are the accountability responsibility punctual punctuality adaptability cooperation those are what help you achieve so those are like fundamentals or classics, pillars you can think of. What are some, I was mentioning earlier, what are some that you think you've been surprised to find on the most successful teams you've worked with? That aren't that the classics. Surprised. Okay, may, okay, not surprised. <laughs> You're very smart, are... <laughs> Robin. But but what's one that's what's one that's outside of the classics, the pillars of performance that just because it's not a pillar of performance, it is essential to team success. I think the ones that are most surprising to teams and or to, to individual yeah. student athletes are the relational, the moral value, relational values, the values that connect you to other people. So, for instance, how does respecting the guy who cleans the tennis courts or the woman who cleans the tennis courts relate to you succeeding as a tennis player? Those are the things that folks sometimes struggle with but they they do affect each other how does treating a teammate with compassion affect performance 
how those are the things that that tend to challenge teams more can you be compassionate and hold a teammate accountable these are harder harder values um, when teams experience that those those moral and ethical and relational values together they hold the team together more closely they you have better team cohesion uh, I think it improves passion, commitment. But, um, you know, our, in our achievement-oriented society and, you know, as things, you know, what was the millennial generation was the first generation who was supposedly going to be challenged to earn as much, to live at the same standard of living as their parents. Right. Well, that got parent focus on the performance values pretty quick, right? You better be accountable, reliable, cooperative, adaptable, all those things that make you a great CEO, right? And so those, you know, they're directly related to achievement. But without those, you have high-achieving sociopaths. Yeah. <laughs> and so you need both. And, and yet it's the very profoundly rewarding ones, the moral, ethical, and relational values that, that tend to be more rewarding, that sustain motivation, and also s- support excellence. They're not in opposition to excellence. sustain mental health too, right? They sustain well-being and mental health because what has been associated, you know, Americans have this eternal quest for happiness, and what's been associated with happiness—not achievement, not wealth, not celebrity—relationships. That's good. That's really good. Hmm. So with the teams, I guess you're working on these values-based, uh, this values-based approach. What else are you working on with them? Uh, do we do things like conflict management, communication, um, um, you know, goal setting. Um, I mean, there, we have a lot of different modules that we do, sure. and then it, and then it moves into more specific. Um, things around performance skills, you know, like the imagery, um, pre-competition routines, managing your emotional arousal around, you know, your sport, things like that. Are you going to see Joker? No. 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 Neither am I, but but why are you not going to see it? I'm not one for, you know, violent movies and psychological thrillers a psychological thriller i i don't know maybe a psychological tragedy right (laughs) (laughs) i haven't seen it so i just you know it doesn't sound like my kind of movie right i'm just i just came to mind because it's it's in the news and um we're talking about mental health and and people are saying that it's sort of a treatise on the effects of loneliness and the effects of people not yes, paying. Yes, I have heard that. And people, the effect of loneliness and the effect of people who are right next door to each other not paying attention to or acknowledging one another. Right. Do you feel that as we've gone more away from familial, smaller communities that that you know you know who your neighbor is. Um, that you have to teach those things to team that that coaches are having to teach those 
those principles to teams or do you think that it falls easier into place for athletes because they know that 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 bonding is part of team success i think it's a combination so you know my non-random sample of experience here um, i would suggest that we have more students in general coming in with the performance values figured out and less with the moral, ethical, and relational values figured out, and um, which is the flip side of how it used to go. You know, right. you spent years and years on the moral and ethical and relational, and the performance one sort of evolved as you went into college and entered the professional world. And so that those moral, ethical, and relational values are about how you connect with other people. They're not just about you. And so, yes, um, I'm not sure that you can wholly attribute it to the evolution from the nuclear family. I think you can attribute it to a lot of, you know, connecting in ways other than in person. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it's really important. I mean, I think sometimes we do more community service than we've ever done before, which is a very good thing. But we forget that grace and compassion and empathy extend to the person in the office next to us, in the room next to us, in the seat next to us in class. Right. And, you know. It's like I want to go on the mission trip to Africa instead of knock on my next door neighbor's door and introduce myself. Yes. And both are very worthwhile endeavors, right? Right. And so that's. I guess that's a kind of is the answer. It's a kind of. I just don't think it's one athletes. thing that's leading to that. Right. I just I just didn't know if there if athletes because they are on teams had to be taught more Both. more. I mean the uh, than you in know, the past about this. Yes. Through your teamwork building exercises and things. I mean you, I think they have to be developed. taught more just in the same way that general college students need to be taught more to appreciate these things. Right. So they do have the convenience of seeing somebody four hours a day every day and coincidentally needing to have a lot of the same academic sleep, travel schedules, eating schedules, right? So they have a tremendous amount of opportunity to be together and that's what creates a familiarity that allows you to get closer to people. And that's the same everywhere. It's just athletic, the athletic environment. And that's what I was talking about when you're talking about well-being. That's one of the things that is automatically part of an athletic environment is the, is the repetitive connectedness opportunities. But to, to make that connect, connection a quality connection, you have to know how to relate to people well. You have to know how to respect people. You have to know how to in- have integrity and keep your word. You know, you have to know how to be humble. Those things are what make for a quality bond with another person. So I think those things are things that everybody needs to work on. That's good, Robin. I will leave it there. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. You're welcome. Learned a lot. (laughs) 